1: My name is Rich Schmidt, I'm here with Sterling Fox. We're at the Nicholson Library in Linfield College. It's April 5th, 2019. Uh, Sterling, we're gonna start you off by asking, uh, why grapes, why, why in the vineyard? Well, um,
0: the wine bug bit me in 1986, I think. I was working in a restaurant in Eugene while going to Lane Community College, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, so I was taking general ed, majoring in several, you know, was just taking interesting classes along with general ed stuff and then I was working at a fine dining establishment called the Excelsior in Eugene and there was a group of professional waiters that worked there that would you know get together after the shift to try wines and of course sometimes there'd be wine distributors bringing wine by. Mm -hmm. One of those wine distributors at the time in 1985, maybe 86 I think, was Kevin Chambers, he was working for Grape and Grain, so I got to meet him 33 years ago then and kind of hit it off a little bit and he was, you know, partly inspirational at the time, but also some of these waiters I was working with had amassed collections of wines because they were professional waiters. So they started pouring these wines from around the world and around Oregon and kind of showing me what was going on and because I was only 19, 20 at the time. So of course I was just tasting. and. Um, the whole uh, concept of Oregon viticulture sort of started to come into play along with winemaking, and so I became inspired, and then I, I worked for about three more years while taking you know, finishing up at LCC for two years. And then when I was 24, I started at OSU in the food science department, which is kind of like the food and wine science department. So I started there in 1989, and that same year I started working for Barney Watson. I worked for Barney Watson for six years at Tyee Wine Cellars with he and the owner David Buchanan. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't really the assistant winemaker because I wasn't qualified for that. I was the assistant to the winemaker. <coughs> Careful distinction there. Sure. But Barney did you know, most of the lab work and stuff himself. So he just needed me to be there for helping run work plans and also mm-hmm. you know, do some of the heavier lifting since he was a little bit older. Um, So, in understanding from working in these restaurants that there was an emerging Oregon wine industry with some nice wines coming out, basically it was like in 1985 and the '83 Pinots were coming out and that was seen as a as a good vintage, and then uh, the '84s came out that wasn't such a great year, but you know people chalked it up to Mother Nature and everything. Then the '85s came out that was also seen as a good year. So it's kind of a little bit of a Oregon was getting a little bit more recognized there in the mid '90s, mm-hmm. so that you know spurred me to. Um, apply and prepare to go to OSU. Sure. So I went. I worked at Tai for six vintages, until 1994. I worked at Harvest of '94 as well, but that's um, also. I was at OSU the entire time for six years, and all the while i was working at tai i was meeting a few different people in the in different departments of the industry i mean of the college um, but also in other segments of the industry you know I, I started going to the what used to be called the oregon horticultural society meetings that my, i'm sure started in the 70s or earlier but i started going in 89 so i've been going for 30 years straight this year to that now it's called the symposium mm-hmm. They still have a Grape Days event at Oregon State, but that sort of is more of research presentations, which is what Grape Days was a lot of back then, but then they created the symposium, and so Grape Days be- has become more of an OSU sure. research presentation format on its own, you know, separate from the whole industry m- meeting that talks about a variety of topics besides just ongoing research. Sure. So, um, the whole time that I was at school working for Barney, we got to work at a bunch of diff- with a bunch of different vineyards, including Die Crisp. That's where I met him, and uh, of course he has uh, a label now, Lumos. But back then he was farming his father's land, and a couple other properties. So he was delivering high quality fruit, and I was seeing that coming in. Of course, uh, well, he lived in Philomath, and I was living in Corvallis, so I was kind of, you know, saw him around mm-hmm. when I was at OSU. Anyway, I after meeting him and seeing all this great fruit coming in from different places, um, Helmock Hill was one, Temperance Hill was another. I mean, Barney had kind of found some really nice sources of fruit from some nice vineyards that, from the nicer vineyards of which there were, you know, fewer back then. But you know, I mean, he had a good reputation in the industry and then he also had a lot of connections to buy good fruit for the, for the Thai brand. Mm -hmm. So the main point I'm getting at is under Barney's Tutelage, I ended up understanding a lot about high quality fruit. At, you know, um, not necessarily always how people achieve that, but that w- the quality of the fruit was very high. And so I learned a higher standard, I feel, or I, I learned a high standard for, for what to expect from fruit. Sure. And then after going through some of the food and wine science chemistry classes, that of which there are many in that, in that discipline or in that major, I just gravitated to viticulture and felt like I was more of a, you know, outdoor person and a a doer, you know, liked the variety of projects rather than maybe being, you know, in one winery or whatever. So Mm -hmm. I guess it just, the nature of viticulture appealed to me from its outdoor and uh, diverse context that you would, you know, farm grapes at, you know, seasonal differences and things like that, that kind of were appealing to me. So um, in 1995 and 96, I worked part-time for Mark Benoit, who was um, the founder of OVS and started a vineyard management company at the time. But I just did certain things for him. But what I was motivated to do at the time um, would be considered a little crazy. Um, I went out and rented a mechanical harvester just because I had the confidence I could do that. (laughs) In some levels it went okay, but on other levels it wasn't really a money-making thing, partly because of the seasonality of it, right? So what do you do the rest of the year when you're not doing some of these farming jobs? And that's that's still a main, uh, one of the most difficult aspects to the industry entirely is the seasonality of trying to stay um, in business in the winter and then try to keep up with business in the summer so to speak so i just knew that me- mechanization was on the forefront and i was just getting out of college and felt like you know young and smart and full of energy <laughs> so i i think i bought or rented most of this, i mean i bought or rented a bunch of pieces of equipment so i i bought a tractor and then Bought a leaf removing machine, which was at the time called a leaf blower. It's a big heavy thing that, you know, you strap to the tractor and um, I bought a hedger. I mean, I didn't have any money. I just kind of borrowed when <laughs> I could. Um, and then I rented that mechanical harvester, but of course it needed a truck and trailer. So you know, I bought like a 1978, Ford flatbed or something that would that would haul the harvester around on a trailer, and so you know it was, it was a totally one-man show except that occasionally I would need an assistant to help me do some driving. So, actually, during that period in 1995, I I have, you know, I have friends from college and stuff and one of my tractor drivers was Colin Malloy of the Decembrists, was one of my tractor driving employees. Complete coincidence, funny, but yeah. So he drove for me, particularly at the Shea Vineyard in 1995. Anyway, I digress, but... uh, That's awesome. I went and got a... a, a, I'd known him for years, you know, from college where his uncle and I, who are, long story about their age, isn't that, they're only about 15 years apart, but we went to school together and were roommates, so that's how I met him, and I won't talk about concerts. <laughs> anyway, um, so I rented this one mechanical harvester in, two th- in 1995, and I was trying to harvest some different vineyards, and one of them was the Shea Vineyard, which is very hilly, and I rolled the mechanical harvester over it on the, you know, in the headland of the vineyard. and. Um, well, that didn't stop me, but that definitely slowed me down. So um, no one got hurt, but it just showed me I couldn't do everything, maybe. And uh, I was, you know, trying to kind of maybe proof to myself that I could do some new and m- more modern things, right? With and and, but that didn't really stop me from continuing. It just stopped me for, the, for a few weeks. But it's hard to be stopped for a few weeks in the middle of harvest. Anyway, so I took the machine back to Washington, where I rented it. And uh, they fixed it up, you know, rewelded welded and stuff and got some insurance, whatever, but going. But, you know, then I brought it back down and did a couple more sites for different locations. One was for Marc Benoit, and the other one was for Benton Lane at the time. And I sort of knew the Benton Lane, I knew the Benton Lane gang from back in, when I started at Tye in 89, because that was in Monroe, which was in you know, uh yeah, uh, Benton County, Benton. And, that, and so I knew those guys and they knew me and then they gave me a chance to do some mechanical harvesting and you know, it didn't go ideally because they didn't really know what to do with mechanically harvested fruit back then. You have to, you know, you have to process it more carefully or a little bit differently and they kind of didn't know. But you know, it was good learning experience. So along comes 1996 and I'm actually you know, doing some odd jobs on the side to keep myself busy uh, and you know, fed. So 1996, I rented another mechanical harvester, a different style, not so heavy. And uh, the thing is though, the 1995 and 96 were kind of rainy harvests. So I, I I struggled a little bit, you know, trying to do a good job when it was raining naturally and on hillside sites. But I went back to Shea again for Marc Benoit and did more mechanical harvesting that next year. But again, it was kind of a hot and cold lifestyle. and. Uh, I would even camp with a tent at the Shea Vineyard. With Colin, you know, we would take turns. When he was driving, I would be in the tent, and when I was driving, he'd be back and forth. Sure. And so uh, that's not actually very good for sleeping, you know. It's the middle of the summer, kind of, and we were doing leaf removal type work, so you know, it's not very easy to sleep in a tent in the middle of summer, but you know, you try to do what you can. So that was all good experiences, but in nine 19- 1997, I started looking for a little more commercially oriented job and I was hired by Willamette Valley Vineyards to work in the winery because I had some experience there. And coincidental timing of everything, they had a a less qualified uh, person in charge of the vineyards at the time. And there was about 30 or 40 acres of grapes at that time. But by the end of 1997, they had leased the O'Connor Vineyard, Mm -hmm. which became Zenith, Mm -hmm. and the Twalton Estate Vineyard, and when they leased those two vineyards, they ended up going to like 150 acres or something, all toll, mm-hmm. Which then uh, I was somewhat suited to take that role by applying, you know, internally at Willamette Valley Vineyards. And at the time, Joe Jobs was the winemaker, and Kevin Chambers was the general manager. Again, back to Kevin. So Kevin knew me a little bit, knew my interest and passion, and and my stick with it attitude, right? <laughs> you know, having met him back when I was a a waiter in the restaurant, um, you know, 12 years earlier, Mm -hmm. is when I met Kevin. And then in 1997 is when Willamette bought the Tualatin estate properties from Bill Fuller and his partner, Bill somebody, I should know, Mm Malkmus, Bill Malkmus, the two Bills. And Bill Fuller had gotten divorced and kind of needed to get out and make a change, and that's when he gave me those archive wines. To him, he was just abandoning them because he had taken what he thought was the good stuff, and he left me the stuff that, you know, was more of a novelty. But I thought, oh my God, these are awesome and cool. <laughs> these are going to be cool old labels for, for the archive people someday. Yes. See? Lots of foresight. Yes, foresight. That's right. I'm always thinking ahead. I mean, you have to, in farming especially, so I'm suited to that. And also, I'm kind of a hoarder, so I collect stuff. So I'm glad to get that box out of my cellar. <laughs> but I mean, you know, in its proper destination only. Of course. And uh, so th- those wines are just in a shed out behind his house. And in 1997, about six months after I was, um, you know, started it, well, I have Vineyards, I moved into the Twalton Estate House where Bill Fuller had lived. So I felt very lucky. And I got to spend some quality time with him because he was in the transition of selling and and doing some consulting with Hammett, off and on for a few years after that time. And I got to work with Efren Loesa. And he's there still now. And this is a really funny one, but I did his voicemail in 1998 and it's still on his phone, <laughs> 21 years later. So I can call him and get his voicemail and hear myself, 21 years ago. That's kind of a weird feeling, mm-hmm. but it's cool. He liked my voice, I guess. I mean, I, did, I said the words right. You're part of history now. Yep. Well, it's just funny. Like, I would call him once in a while and go, wait a second. That's the voicemail I made for you in 1998. So I just thought that was kind of cute, because he's a great guy. So he's still at Willamette, and they're managing a bunch of acreage. And you know, I got to work with him. And you know, he, he knew a lot. He taught me, and I knew some things that I taught him. But you know, if anything, he probably knew more than me, he's been there for like 35 years or something. But we had a good working relationship there. And then, um, I'm trying to think of any little chapters along the way, of course that vineyard you know, has old vines and there's, we did some additional planting there. And uh, so I got to do some redevelopment there at the upper portion mm-hmm. of the property, which was, uh, you know, just had, they just started the planting I think in 1997. So I did some more planting there in 98, 99 and then you know, I just felt like I wasn't quite making the, the salary I needed for my family, so I started looking around, and I took a job with Rex Hill in in the March of 2000. <clears throat> that was cool and great, you know, after four years at Willamette and that Twelton project, and Jim really wanted me to stay, but he was very nice, he understood, you know, you gotta go if you gotta go, and so um, I transitioned smoothly to there, and. I moved into the manager's house that they had at the Jacob Hart Vineyard. Um, that's when I started working with Lynn Penner Ash, and that was good, another good experience, right? And and so Rexhill had about ten of their own in-house vineyard projects going. They either owned or leased like ten separate vineyards. Might have been eight or ten anyway. But I was you know getting my feet under me as a career vineyard manager and so i was um, interested in expanding the vineyard management capacity of their company and so the company that i was the general manager of is called oregon grape management and it had had several other managers before me tim scott who's at uh, archery summit now was the first manager of Oregon Great Management for Paul Hart and Jan Jacobson. And then there was a second manager, I'd say after five years or something, that things didn't work out with Tim for some reason, I'm not sure. Um, Diane Kenworthy, who came out of California, was the second manager of Oregon Great Management. And she was from California, and sometimes California attitudes about Oregon grape growing don't quite match, and so it wasn't a perfect fit. So after three years, it was time for her to move on, mm-hmm. and that's when I jumped in the spring of 2000. So anyway, I started soliciting the services of the, of the vineyard management company, Oregon Grape Management, to other people. And I, I, I worked that company up to about 25 or 30 different vineyards we were managing. Okay. And I, in 2000, I started managing the Marsh Vineyard in the Dundee Hills. I'm still managing that site after 19 years, 20 years, whatever. This will be the 20th year. So I'm close to the Marsh family after having worked there all this time. But of course, there's been some iteration. You know, some things have changed there. You know, in the different management of the companies over the years. We'll get to that. Um, so, you know, I started making more contacts. I was a little more central, Yamhill County, naturally, than up in Forest Grove. And I started, uh, you know, making inroads into the vineyard management circles. And it turned out that by the time I got to 2005, I was managing all of Rex Hill, all of Shehalem, all of Bergstrom estate properties in that pursuit to take on more, to keep people busy, you know, during the growing season. And it was going great. I mean, it, it did all go well. I was at Shalem for, I mean, I managed the Shalem Vineyards for three years and uh, the Bergstrom Vineyards for one year. But Bergstrom, people would call me as a fixer because they if they had problems getting things done, they knew that I was mm-hmm. into that. And uh, and uh, I was not afraid of a challenge. And so they had, they just had trouble, you know, kind of organizing their crew work plans with the winemaker ideas about how things should be done. So <laughs> So they would, They called me in to kind of help streamline the management. And at the end of that year, they hired one of my staff to take over all their operations. I call that poaching, and that's happened many times (laughs) to me. But these things happen. Anyway, uh, I'll probably remember a few things that happened in that period, but you know, I was in managing like 25 to 35 vineyards. Each year at that time, give or take, some people coming and going and up and down. And so then I was hired in that 2009, I think, to start the Oloro project. And I think in 2007, I was hired to start the Eveninglands project at, at Seven Springs. So I did that Eveninglands seven springs project for four or five years and then i hired an in-house team for them to, so that i would just be a consultant and then I, you know i i told them if things, if a, a good consultant if they do a good job for a while, you, you don't need them later and that's what happened I, we tried to do a nice job and then we got them into their own crew mm-hmm. team paradigm and then they didn't need me anymore and i wasn't trying to you know make work um Soon after that, I started and put in the Beezy Vineyard, which is next door to them, and that was been a fun project. Um, B-I-E-Z-E, if you haven't heard of that vineyard, it's a nice vineyard next to, next to Seven Springs, and I think it would be fun to, for you to interview Jerry Beezy, the owner, because it's like a 100-year-old farm with a 100-year-old home on it, and he's turned it into a nice vineyard next to Seven Springs. Sure. He meaning he and me. But (laughs) when I say me, I mean me and my team, right? Because I couldn't do all the work i do with it. I didn't have a bunch of really good people working with me. So um, I bounced around there a little bit because some of the timelines are, I just have to remember or look at calendars. But in 2006, Rex Hill decided to sell all their properties. And I had help, I was helping Paul Hart do some lot line adjustments and make things more presentable for sale and so <clears throat> we created in the Jacob Hart vineyard which was a bunch of parcels but all farmed as 175 acre ranch we carved it down into 350s i mean it had lot lines but i mean we we sold them in it into 350 acre pieces and a 25 acre piece and the 25 acre piece had the least vineyard on it mm-hmm but had the house. And so when we sold the three 50-acre pieces, one went to A to Z, and the other two went to two other people. Olenick was the first buyer of one of the other ones, and then Todd Hansen was the other buyer of those two, and they have brands of their own. Anyway, the 25-acre piece was left for me at the end to buy with my wife, my second wife. Let's talk about my wives for a second. I met my first wife in 1993, and we had our first daughter, Madeline, in 1994. When we got to Twelfth Estate in 1997, her name is. Uh, when we got married, which wasn't right when we got together, we got married a little later. Her married her name now is Kelly Fox, and and so when she was. When we were at OSU, she was in the biochemistry department and I was in food science. And so we had you know some classes together and we played ultimate Frisbee and stuff like that and fell in love and made a baby and um, named her Madeline. And then we moved to Twalton Estate property. And uh, I was also entrusted at the time because of its satellite location nature to Willamette, I was asked if I would just oversee the tasting room operations that were there, which were just open on the weekends. Mm -hmm. So I started hiring tasting room employees in addition to vineyard management, very busy. And uh, I asked Kelly, who was, uh, our our second baby was born in 1997, just a few months before we moved to Tualatin State. So since she was busy with babies, right two-year-old and an infant she worked for I mean she she just did some part-time work right in the taste room but then once the babies got past nursing stage and you know she was getting back on her feet to be more in the career minded since she had a degree in biochemistry and appreciated food and wine like I did I said hey you know, you should think about wine making that would complement what I do really and so she started working at Willamette Valley Vineyards as a intern, which is usually where most winery people start. And then she started working in the lab in enology because she was qualified with her background in um, biochemistry. And then uh, we moved to that Newburgh opportunity, like I said, in 2000. I think around, I've got to place this better, I should know this. About 2003 uh, we separated mm-hmm. and she went on to create her own wine label called Kelly Fox Wines. While she was working at Tory Moore, I met some of her co-workers and one of them's name is Kelly Kidney. But I wasn't really paying attention because I was married. But after I wasn't married, a few years later, I started to pay attention. And Kelly Kidney, who would be fun for you to interview at some point, too, because she's worked with David Lett and, had an, and has been in the industry for 20 years now. So she's my second wife named Kelly, and so it's the tale of two Kellys. Which, you know, you just can't make up some of this stuff. Sometimes it just happens, right? <laughs> and then you have to go with it because that's the way go, life goes sometimes, right? And so some people tease me about it, but... That's okay. Teasing is all right. I'm used to to being teased. Um, So it turned out that my second wife, Kelly, is the one I bought the property with that we were living in in the manager's house at the Jacob Hart Vineyard, see? So we bought that in 2008, and I had been making wine in the garage for a couple years for fun, and I didn't tell you second daughter's name is Violet. So I was calling the wine I was making in the garage from 2002 to 2007, I was calling it Mad Violets because one day I was helping, one day my old friend and college roommate, Jason Tosh, was helping me in the garage. He was a college roommate at OSU. He was helping me in the garage do some bottling in 2003 or something, and I was calling for the children, Madeline, Violet, Mad, Violet, and he turned to me and says, why don't you just call the wine Mad Violets? I'm like, that's a cute name. And of course, I was just writing on the label. I wasn't trying to be commercial. But then I married Kelly, too, and she was a winemaker. And the house had a little vineyard. And so I'm like, hey, we can use these grapes, and we can make this label, we can get commercial. I mean, Let's, let's make some wine. And I've been in debt ever since, <laughs> because it's a little boutique brand. We make about a 1, thousand, fifteen hundred cases. So the official start of that brand is two thousand eight by label standards, but the the um, actual start in the garage was two thousand and two. So my second wife ended up being a big influence on my two daughters, which was great, and they have a good relationship. And um, The wine brand took on a little bit of life of its own naturally as it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. And so we just make a thousand to fifteen hundred cases a year with that. And there's a little dog kennel on the property that we turned into a tasting room. (laughs) So it was obviously a pretty nice kennel, (laughs) but it's a small tasting room. It's very charming and intimate when you have guests there, which makes a lot of people feel comfortable because. You know, rather than going into a big taste room where you, uh, you know, are in a large room where you have to wait in line or you have to, you know, you have to deal with employees, or you know, you, when you come to our location room, it's just us. So we just open by appointment. Anyway, that's kind of a sidelight. So back to 2006, kind of pivotal year. So the transaction between A to Z and Paul Hart. To buy Rex Hill and a number and several of the vineyard properties, that consummated on the 31st of December, 2006. And it needed to, for tax and financial reasons, they wanted to consummate it, so they were kind of rushing toward the end. But I mean, that, the deal took the whole year to negotiate, whatever. Mm-hmm. So A to Z does what some companies do, larger companies. They said, okay, everybody, we're buying a company, but you're all fired. You can be rehired tomorrow, and all your benefits will start over again, so to speak, but I mean start from zero again. And I get it, that's what they had to do. Anyway, they asked me to, whether I wanted to stay or go. But I was right in that process of buying that house, which was in the properties, and of course, Mr. Hart was kind of beholden to A to Z to follow through on their commitments, and A to Z actually wanted the property where I, where I was living, but he had already obligated to sell it to me. Mm-hmm. So I used diplomatic pressure to get him to follow through on that deal and Paul Hart and Jan Jacobson were always great. It's just that their children also didn't want them to sell it. So the pressure was mounting on the outside to not sell the property, but he had made commitments. So I used my skills to um, remind him of his commitment and he was fine with that because he was a really good guy, just amazing. Mm One of the best people, and I'm sure you have some archive stuff from him if you haven't already. He's just fantastic. And Jan is great too. So anyway, A to Z said, are you in or are you out? And I'm like, well, I'm in, I guess. And so I felt, you know, a little torn there. But I also was shepherding the whole crew from the Rex Hill OGM team, and they were call, sort of uncertain about, you know, how this was all going down. And I didn't really want to rock the boat because I wanted to buy the property that they wanted where I was living, and you know, so I sort of went along with it. And then there was this one employee who was kind of getting in the middle of things and trying to get, get opportunity in the transition. And he, he kind of said to me one day, I know you're gonna quit, so if you don't tell them, I'm gonna, like, ah. Uh, I might have told them, I kind of want to quit. So I quit, like 90 days into the new job, and the A to Z people were mad. And you know who they are. Mm-hmm. And they're all professional business people, and I like them enough, but you know, they all got there their own way too. So I hope the archives reflect their history properly. But moving on, uh, They weren't too happy. But what happened was I was managing like 30 different vineyards at the time and 15 of them were Rex Hill supplying properties and 15 weren't. What's interesting is the most profitable year of Oregon Great Management was 2005 when I was managing 30 sites. But you know, profits and companies, corporations can be shown in a certain way. But we were going well, business was going well and we were doing okay from a profit margin standpoint of farming, because farming is not always a profit margin business. Anyway, it needs to be to survive. So the point is that half the sites I was farming were not, were not sites that, that Rex Hill was receiving the fruit from, so A to Z didn't really care or want me to farm them, but they were gonna try to let me farm more to keep the company going, and in order to retain me. Mm-hmm. But instead, because of the circumstances where I didn't really feel like working for that type of corporate structure company, basically they said something like, we want you to work more and we're gonna pay you less. I think I'll try my own path. So I, I took the 15 clients that A to Z didn't want, and I started my own company in 2007 called uh, Sterling Wine Grapes. Swig for short, yeah. That was, that was a coincidence by the way. <laughs> and, and so then I've been on this self-managed company that I founded you know, for the past 12 years. And I'm still based in Newburgh and I still manage 30 or plus or minus sites annually. Uh, like I said, Marsh is one of them, and that's you know a fun one to mention. Um, the uh, Seven Springs project, you know, kind of came up along that same time frame. Uh, I got to manage estates like Britain and. Like I said, Shehalem and Bergstrom and Rexhill, of course, and then Scott Paul, who's now which recently that brand went under. Um, I'm sure I can remember a few more if I thought about it. But uh, I would I would actually say that I I may have managed more vineyards personally th- than almost anyone else. So there's there's a few veterans who are very accomplished that've been in the business longer, mm-hmm. including. Joel Myers and Bob Bailey, those two guys, I'm sure you've archived their stories since they're a bit, little bit older than me and they've been in the industry longer, but because of the nature of me taking on a lot of smaller clients and wanting to work with a wider range of people, um, I've been very accepting over the years of diversity in the owner category. Mm-hmm. See, that's diplomatic. Um, so I've worked with a lot of different people many of whom would maybe only last a couple of years or maybe like get their show on the road. Example of that is a couple of years back in 2016, I was asked to come into Paddy Green Cellars and do the same thing for, so for two or three years, I managed all their operations, got them all rolling smoothly, and they took one of my employees, right, to help them take care of everything. They didn't ask though. Anyway, it happens. Um, So I've built this attitude and I think reputation of being very quality oriented and all started back to the restaurant business where I was tasting fine wines and then working with Barney Watson and seeing all this great fruit come in, it just sort of gelled in me over the years that I really only wanted to grow the best fruit, I worked at the best sites, which would make the best wine, which I thought was also, you know, the most important, right? But it was important because I was quality oriented to seeing how what was the best way we could do it. And that's just been a pervasive attitude I've had from the beginning is is working, my specialty is working with winemakers who are a finicky bunch uh, to make them feel like they got the fruit farmed to the standards that they were trying to achieve and that they had um, expected. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, not, it doesn't work every single time. But I, I would say, you know, I have a high degree of success in, in helping winemakers feel like they, they got the fruit of the highest possible quality because that would make better wines. And then if, if they ever felt like they didn't get things done right, then they would, they would say, well, if something happened to the wine, it's because we didn't get good enough fruit, see? So mm-hmm. I never wanted the, the overall fruit quality aspects to be a a limiting factor for a client, just because I always had this really high standard of quality in my mind that I was trying to go for. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so sometimes I've been seen as more expensive than some of my peers, and that's a fair comment. Usually though, the more expensive is because you do more and you get what you pay for. You do more, you get more, and it costs more, but you get something that's better out of the end. Uh, I started the Dukes Family Project in Amity, which I highly recommend you guys go there. It's a really special spot. And It turns out that my wife, Kelly Kidd and I, I introduced her to all of her clients and she makes wine for three or four different wineries, including Karen and Joe at Andante. I started that project and introduced her to them and she makes their wine. I started the Duke's project, which was a beat up vineyard with no water and power and some problems and they bought it and then we rehabilitated it and then expanded the property and then they've done amazing things on the property as well. They would be fun to interview I think at some point and they started with Gary Andrus back in like 2005 or something and he, or of course I didn't really, I worked around Gary a little bit, I didn't really work for him but you know, I met him a few times of course and talked to him at certain events and, He's a character, mm-hmm. was. Um, I, I'm sure you've gotten some feedback about Gary along the way. So I tried to stay out of problem circles, if I could. And so I think I've avoided problems pretty well, <laughs> or uncomfortable relationships that you know can't be resolved over time if there's some disagreement. Um, To think about
1: current events a little bit, well, maybe I'll ask a couple questions and we'll come back yeah, to Yeah, I also want to talk about live, so I was involved in live. Well, yeah, you can come back to it. Let me let me ask you, uh, just for in your definition, what, how do you define vineyard management? What is it you do uh, for four people? Good question. Vineyard management? Well, it's a year
0: round property management service from my standpoint, but obviously, there are winter periods that there's very little activity, so you know you have to go with the flow of of energy and needs in the property but uh to me vineyard management is uh, maintaining or enhancing the quality of someone's fruit producing operation in the best interest of the owner and the buying clients mm-hmm. and by doing so you know preserving the integrity and equity of a property but also trying to enhance its reputation for this value-added product that's downstream literally of the uh of the you know fruit the raw fruit product um i think it very seriously to try to be sustainable and we have a number of organic clients and we're happy and willing to do organic farming because i think i believe in it but also i go back to the client right so you know a lot of people buy organic vegetables, but organic grapes are a lot more complicated than vegetable production. So in organics, organic, the organic act is basically an act of Congress that has very black and white. So I try to interpret that for people who wanna know where, where, what is the best way to farm organically. And we've done some biodynamic farming as well. And I think that that is a, uh, an element, a, a layer of frosting on that cake so to speak, of sustainability, and of also being mindful of the planet and the and natural processes. So to me, it's just maintaining and enhancing people's property. Uh, I got him his first job. I, I, he was in a horticultural business after we got out of college. You know, I went into vineyards, and he went into horticultural nursery production. And I, I for years, I was saying, hey, you should try the vineyard business. So then, you know, I gave him a reference, whatever, but he didn't really need one much but I recommended him to the Ponzi's and then he started there and they he went to Annemie and Isaac he's at Stoller and so he's had a nice, and on the wine board, and he's had a nice trajectory and he's a smart and great guy. Anyway, uh, so to me, being responsible and mindful with people's property because we don't just plant vineyards, we don't just cut all the trees down and plant vineyards because we think that's gonna maximize tonnage of production, I think that that's a big mistake. I think that uh, there's, Um, careful and thoughtful ways to develop a property into a vineyard that allow us to have some element of the natural environment be a part of it and a a great example of that is the J. Christopher Ernie Lawson project that I also was hired to put in and there's a lot of beautiful trees that we left in and around the vineyard to try to enhance the natural aspect of that and that's a classic example of trying to you know work with what was there old oak trees and you know sloping hill and stuff like that And so to me, it's just maintaining and enhancing people's property and trying to get the most I I can from a quality standpoint out of there. And actually, it it turns out because I've tried to do that so hard, a number of winemakers are usually happy to find out that I'm managing a site that they're getting fruit from because they know we're going to really do the best job we can within the budget if possible. (laughs) Again, it's not always easy to stay on budget, but we try to do a nice job and... And we're m- more mindful of that each year because as the cost of things go up, you know, we have to always show that we value the numbers as well as the activities that the, that the customers are paying.
1: You mentioned working with winemakers and, and call, I, think, I believe you called them fickle was the word you use, which yes. is fin- finicky. finicky. Yes. Also a good word. Uh, so I'm curious uh, with that relationship, because of course they have, a, they have a standard in mind for what they want. You have a standard in mind for what you want. Uh, Clearly, uh, sometimes one of you has to flex or the other. So how do you kind of work that relationship? How do you build relationships with winemakers? And how do you negotiate the kind of the finished product?
0: Well, the winemakers usually call the shots. And that's understandable from a variety of perspectives. The owners often don't know much about winemaking and the chemistry and processes, and it's very subjective. So, winemaker, Winemakers often get a little more authority and or latitude to make decisions because it's the raw product of grapes that they're taking from the handoff of, from the farm and, and going the next stage. Mm-hmm. And so whoever's in charge of the final stage of something gets more authority and control over the prior stages to achieving that result. And since the process of winemaking is somewhat mysterious, especially to a lot of site owners or non-science related people you know, who might own vineyards, they're given a lot of latitude to make those decisions that, are gonna, that, that um, will achieve the best wine. So I, I see the position that I'm in, contributing and working collaboratively with winemakers to get them to trust that we're gonna do it the way they want and so you know it's like the buck stops at the winemaker a little bit but on the way it has to you know pass through the vineyard managers hand um, so I, I, I treat winemakers with a, a, a lot of respect for their goals mm-hmm. and I will advise them if they want or if they feel you know if I feel they really need some but you know many of them are very qualified and talented individuals who know what they want but you know there's at the end of the day, it's often, I'll just use some uh, average numbers. At the end of the day, it's, we'll just say three tons an acre, and you have to have the right number of people, space, tanks, barrels, bottles, labels. So a vineyard could easily produce four, five, six tons an acre. And we're using an average of a quality of Pinot Noir vineyard, maybe three tons. Of course, some sites would be more and some might be less. But the point is that everybody has to have a goal of what's to be achieved in the future. So all the contracts, all the payments, all the pricing relates to some agreed upon contractual amount. Because if everybody brought in four tons an acre, then you'd be 25% over and you would run out of money to pay for 25% more barrels, bottles, labels, space, everything, right? And you know, every ton costs something to produce. Whether it's the winery owner, who hired the winemaker, or the all the employees who are, you know, coordinating the activities of the winery. Mm-hmm. So I would just say that I I engage winemakers in a collaborative manner to really help them feel like their opinion matters. And that I, I've seen in other growing regions and, and, you know, anywhere, but especially I saw a lot in my trips to California because I would go down there on my own just to do research and network with other people in vineyard management companies and things like that. So I, I would just go down there to see people I would meet, you know, I mean, I would, in, I kind of invite myself but they knew I was coming and so I what I'm getting at is I would see a lot of winemakers and vineyard managers kind of have a a a uncomfortable combative relationship and I'd seen a number of relationships in the Napa Valley for instance where the vineyard manager and the winemaker didn't talk to each other and I thought you know that's the opposite you would ever want in a collaborative relationship so why would you ever want to even work in a situation like that I mean that's not that's not very fun or happy or rewarding or you know or uh, complementary to each other right so i I vowed early on to not be in that position and so then I I treat winemakers with the proper amount of deference and respect for their opinion and also even if they are wrong they're not gonna they're not gonna figure that out until they learn the hard way And so, I might advise them one way, and if they didn't want to do it, I'd say, okay, well, let's do it your way because then, you know, it's gonna be what it is. And if there was gonna be a problem, you know, it might turn up, but then it would be, they would own it, right? So, again, without, you know, being too entrenched in my dogma or my philosophy about how things were to be done, I would ask them how they want it done. Now, back to the whole three tons per acre thing, if it's supposed to be three tons an acre, then that's what they want, <laughs> and you got to get it there through a means of um, processes and, and tasks that have to be achieved at the right time. And you know it can't be shriveled and dried up. It can't be underripe. It can't be full of mildew. You know, so that, that's what we you know, that's our big challenge. Which you know we we welcome in my company and my attitude with my staff is you know we're going to do the things that get you to the goal you have. And so we talk about that so that we're all on the same page. And actually that I think has worked well for many years. Um, and I feel like uh, I have a, like a happy industry relationship with my peers mm-hmm. and my clients and you know, with myself. Like, I feel like I've done things the right way, the, the, uh, the good way, you know, in working with people. And so I guess I have a, a positive outlook and I've always been kind of an optimist so that, per, that pervades my attitude of, of wanting to work with people so that they'll be satisfied. I mean like I said about winemakers being the gatekeepers or, or you know the box topping with them, if they're not satisfied with the product that they're getting at the end of this stream of the vintage you know the end of the vintage then they're gonna make some changes and some of those changes might be asking me to move on or hiring someone else or buying someone else's grapes. So since I grow grapes for a number of people who aren't winemakers, you know, they want to become known by winemakers as having good grapes. And again, that, would, that really dovetailed into my philosophy for how I would, I would um, conduct myself within the industry is you know, again, grow the best possible grapes, create the best reputation for the farming services so that there's a positive attitude about what we do. Sure.
1: Long answer. It's Great answer. Uh, you mentioned your team, and you mentioned how often they've been poached from you. I'm curious what you look for and, and your team, how you build it. What, what are the what is it you're looking for? If someone's going to work for you.
0: Well, the last two people I hired were from, not even from Oregon, so I'm maybe trying to hire someone, some people that no one else knows. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's a sidelight. Um, you know, similar attitude, the can-do attitude, and the seasonality. You know, I mean, farming is very intense during the growing season i mean uh, summer and stuff mostly and so people who aren't afraid to work but also know that they'll get uh paid time off later you know i mean in their vacation and whatever that that compensates them for working so hard but i guess you know collaborative team nature type teamwork type people and you know the the collaborative nature of wanting to uh achieve the same goal of quality and 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 um and integrity you know like what we do we, we what we say we're going to do we do and then when we do it we we do it right with a plan and collaboration with the clients and stuff mm-hmm. so I guess you know look for people who are specialized somewhat I mean so I had one person recently who's out of California and he is he's a chemical specialist because we have to spray a lot of fungicides and um, another one who's who has a background in horticulture so they have some of that but also you know can do attitude and then i have some office staff who you know put the numbers together i just hired a newer person and i gave her the title communications manager so what do you think she does she answers my emails <laughs> <laughs> that's not my favorite thing I i'd be out in the field working with clients and staff of course you gotta be in the office sometime you gotta answer some of your emails but If you have someone help you answer emails, then you can get those clients' answers answered more quickly because I'm in the field because this is very much a, not just a visual uh, related uh, impression and outcome, but a like this tangible, physical, Process so along the way you have to kind of keep an eye on the process to make sure that things are going in the right direction From that from that expectation standpoint that that owners and winemakers have sure. And so I hire I guess people I think to have similar attitudes to me and that want to work in a Team environment and you know, it's not a big company I mean I have eight or ten full-time employees and then you know crew varies throughout the year uh, There were other people before the current people right and they were all good and many of them have been with me for eight ten some of them 12 years since i started drilling wine grapes um like i said i just worked with a lot of different um labor providers contractors and uh i think i have a good rapport there and i would say that there's someone in particular i think that would be fun to interview with that his name is Eusebio hernandez and he was like the first foreman for mark benoit about 35 years ago or something like that and he has graduated to the point where he has his own company called Valley Verde Vineyard Services he lives in Amity and he's a good guy he has a vineyard manager company like me with that he works manages with his son Arineo so it's Arineo and Eusebio Hernandez is their last name they're terrific family so you know, you don't necessarily hire all your peers, but Valley Verde and I hire each other to help when we need help, and that's kind of fun to have a collaborative peer that you could work with without you know, the poaching sure. or the jostling for competition and stuff like that, so. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just a great guy. And one of the main reasons is because he worked with Marc Benoit from the very beginning, and he's just a wonderful man. Mm-hmm. So he'd be fun to interview, I think, for you. Um, Kevin Chambers knows of him because he also, when Kevin Chambers got to OVS and created Results Partners, Eusebio was one of the main components for that, at that company, not OVS, but the Results Partners part. So I'll just make a little comment quote that might help put some things in perspective for everybody. There are, I don't know now, 15,000 acres of grapes in Oregon, right? And there's around seven, over 700 brands or something, right? Wine brands. But there's only five or 10 vineyard management companies. Because that's a really tough job, actually. And it's not a, it's a young man's game. You know, it's, it, it, it's just a lot of energy, right? And so I was, I've always been an energetic person, but you know, I wouldn't say that I'll do it forever. You know, maybe I'll retire in my 60s or something, who knows? Uh, it's just that it's a special, of person who can handle the finicky winemaker client paradigm you know multiplied by how many clients you might work with on top of the seasonality and the the stress of cash flow in a such a seasonal business Mm -hmm. so most of your marriage company people they didn't go into it because they had money ahead of time or because they wanted to make a lot of money they did it because they like farming which is kind of a true pursuit type of mentality, which I think is, is a is a neat aspect to the attitude. Whereas, you know, a lot of people who buy and start wineries, they got the money somewhere else, right? Or they inherited something from their family and they wanted to have a lifestyle change and have the have the wonderful wine winery and wine industry lifestyle that many people envision in the industry when they come here or start in it. But most of your management people, they're farmers. Who like to grow wine grapes or got into it through circumstance and interest of horticulture and other pursuits you know when they went to college and they kind of turned on something with them to do that so you know this small core of vineyard management professionals is is growing naturally as the industry has grown but it's really a very very small segment of the actual industry because it's very challenging to to manage a bunch of people's vineyards, mm-hmm. and then have everybody be happy. So it, it, I was counting in 2017. I I grew fruit for 50 different winery brands, and that's where the logistics come in, and especially at harvest when, you know, it's uh, very time sensitive mm-hmm. to their schedules of and weather. And so, um, I feel like that it's a nice. Um, something to be proud of in a way, you know, that I've been able to work with 50 different winemakers in a given year and and have the outcome for them be positive almost entirely. I mean, you know, occasionally there might be somebody that <laughs> didn't get something exactly the way they wanted, but. That's
1: a big, that's a big percentage of the wine brands that you're, that you're working yeah, with. Yeah, well, I mean, really there's, of
0: course, a lot of wine brands, but, um, I work with small brands to get them small things that are a big deal for them because I've also noticed that those small wine brands often become those winemakers could become big wine brand managers down the road see so it I, I feel it's a cool payback mentality that if I can help them when they're small and getting started that they'll remember me later when they're bigger and have more authority to hire Vineyard Management or, or they're gonna say, well, if we can get fruit from something, Sterling is farming, then we, you know, we, we can trust he's gonna do a good job like he did back then when it wasn't very important. You know, I mean, when it was such a small thing, he sure. still made that important. And so you know, so it's like, no job is more important than another. And so the, when the little guys and girls, realize that you care about them the same there's some loyalty that gets generated and I just think that's a positive attribute that is fun to kind of see and that's happened in a few cases you know some of the winemakers who have risen up through the ranks of the industry and taken other bigger jobs you know they've their whole
1: responsibility and paradigm shifts and then they they need people they can count on so that's been fun you mentioned that the number, number of people, not, not a lot of companies in Oregon doing vineyard management, mm-hmm. but you said that it was kind of growing. Do you see that it will continue to grow with the industry? Or as the industry grows, will more and more people ha- have their own vineyard manager?
0: Well, you know, you need a big enough property to justify having your own vineyard manager full time. Some people I know, I mean, several, pe- several growers and site owners might share one or two people that they use back and forth. Naturally, it's gonna grow as the industry grows. Um, I don't see. I don't expect a lot more venture management companies to start. Although you know, there, I'm sure there will be some. Mm-hmm. I would say there would be some consolidation, uh, which is just you know, industry trends in any in any growing industry, and then there would also be. Well, the consolidation part is that you know that anyone who's here could get bigger and then take more on rather than having a smaller competitor. But in terms of being a competitor. You, once you get larger competitors that have consolidated, sometimes it's either hard to compete with them or hard to break in. So uh, I'm sure there'll be some, but I, don't, I wouldn't expect a lot more. I mean, c- there's some California energy and companies, one in particular that's come up here, Maritza, and a couple, and that reminds me, I could speak about my impression on their Premier Pacific deal at some oh, point, if you care. I would love to hear about that. And then there's the live program
1: to talk about a little bit. I got that one too, yes, absolutely.
0: So I I guess I'd see some consolidation, some growth, but again, wineries and winemakers and site owners wanting, uh, there's a certain inertia about farming that they trust the bigger fish to get the job done Mm -hmm. and that's a security blanket mentality which
1: is understandable sure. so some growth but I think mostly some consolidation so I'm gonna back up for a second and then we'll this yeah, I've got a couple questions to ask you about what we've talked about so far but I want to back up to when you're in school at Oregon State you started kind of working for Barney I'm curious um, if there were aspects of the industry that you were unprepared for that school that you came out of school and you thought okay i got this and then you got into you got into actually working in the industry and you're like oh wow i was not expecting this at all was it well you did you feel like you're pretty prepared or were there things about working in the industry that that caught you by surprise well you know i came to it from the winery
0: we should talk a little bit about thai too sure. just because there's a funny aspect to that story so i'm adding i'm adding elements and i and i'm okay time-wise since i was late um well first of all i've got a strong work ethic attitude so i sort of jumped into things both feet you know wholeheartedly Mm -hmm. and so that made me less fearful of the unknown in my world or my uh, experience but but uh more confident that i could figure things out so i didn't go to horticultural classes right I mean I learned a few things in school so it was mostly food and wine science right and um, I kind of knew what I didn't know so I tried to hire some people who knew when I would hire people to help me or be on the team I would listen to them if they if i knew they knew more than me about certain things so i i knew less about growing grapevines and more about wine quality and what we were trying to achieve and so then i kind of worked backwards with a lot of self teaching mm-hmm. a lot of reading i i still i don't read fiction i read textbooks just because i'm still trying to learn and i think that i can always there's always something more to learn and of course as we find out more about how the world works because we're so uh, able-bodied, you know, these days to, to find out more about plant biology and soil attributes and stuff. So I I didn't know much about soil science and plant science, so I kind of count that. So I guess I was a little less prepared in that regard. Also, I guess the most important one is I studied chemistry and science, and I didn't study business. So, again, I did have the... Uh, go get 'em attitude to learn things, but I've had to learn. Uh, the hardest part, you know, now that you mention it, is learning the business part because I wasn't focusing on that in school. I was focusing on the science and the chemistry and the and the things related to the to the discipline I was in. So I, I'm sure that younger students and people in 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 school are thinking about that more maybe i mean different different programs will have some business in them maybe a little bit and i guess that's about the only thing i would think i mean i kind of learned what i didn't know horticulturally like i said but the business part was a little harder to kind of learn that part you know managing people Mm -hmm. and uh finances sure yeah so tell me about Taiyi then, what, what? Well, yeah, so one of the most fun things of all, in a way, at least as a memory, was that when I started, and for the first four, uh, three or four years of the six I was there, there was the destemmer, which is still in their taste room, is made 100% of wood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Except for a little teeny motor that they put on there because it used to be a hand crank, but they got tired of hand cranking, so they put a little motor on it with a belt, and of course, the belt and the motor would get all covered in grape juice and stuff. It was kind of a mess. But you could only put about 50 pounds of grapes in the hopper because it was only about two and a half feet square. And then the, the wood pegs on the rollers would liberate the berries from the stems. And then you'd pull back an arm and the door would go up and the stems would fall out. And you'd close the door and you'd put back 50 pounds more. So we were doing 50 tons a year. 50 pounds at a at a crush, you know, at a time. So that's where I came in because I was young and strong, but also I was able to bring other college kids who were young and strong and we would all work together and have fun getting all sticky and juicy and stung by wasps and stuff. Um, but the pace of it was kind of, you know, epically slow. And then I think in the fourth or fifth year, you know, he did get a, a A stainless steel modern press, but before that, it was all hand crank press. So you had to, like, like, like a jack, you know, a hydraulic jack. Mm -hmm. So you had to operate the ram with your hand, you know, just by cranking with your hand to make it go down each time, and then you know, make it go up, which I think you had to hand crank it up, also, and then you'd open the cage and break the cake, and then maybe try to repress it to get more juice because those don't press as hard, but they're you know seen as high quality pressing. But also time-consuming, so there was a lot of manual labor at Taiyi in the early days when they were getting started, and it was kind of fun, I know, for them. And and Barney is Scottish, and so he's always had a frugal way about him. But that was, you know, how you—that's how a lot of farmers learn how to do things early on—is you know, get do-it-yourself with what you got. Mm-hmm. So there was definitely some make-do, l- learn how to make-do attitude that a lot of farmers need to have in order to survive, especially during the lean years or the early years when they're trying to start you know, something that they maybe haven't done before. So, because Barney worked full-time at OSU, we'd go out there on Friday afternoons and then worked Saturdays and sometimes Sundays. And that's how I paid from school was that, you know, a few other jobs, but that was my main job during, in college. Because of course in the summer there was more going on I didn't work in the vineyard too much just a little bit but the Buchanans you know manage their own vineyard there and they're still there in second generation Margie Margie wait Margie's the mom I'm forgetting the, I'm forgetting the daughter's name it'll come to me uh, anyway second generation Buchanan family member is still there and making the wine and I think she went to OSU mm-hmm. so
1: uh,
0: they realized the uh, unique nature of that D. De- Stemmer, and I think they have it on display in the tasting room there because it should be on display, right? Mm -hmm. So definitely something we use for years though, you know, really still works, but you know, it's kind of limited in scope. Then they got new stuff. About the time I was leaving, they got new stuff. (laughs) So in the live program, which I was a part of in the founding in 1998 because I was working for Reliant Valley Vineyards, who was very uh, supportive of the live program, So I got to know Carmo Vasconcelos, who was at OSU at the time, and then Steve Price and Ted Castile, and Porter Lombard, who was terrific. I think he might be still alive, and I don't know if you've archived him, but he's terrific. Uh, So I got to work with these great people at OSU, Porter and Lombard and Steve Price and Mina McDaniel in the sensory lab, which is another job I had at food science. I was working with for Mina McDaniel in her lab. Anyway, by uh, all these people are helping, you know, support the whole live program getting started. And so, you know, I was like a member through Live well, Vineyards. And then I think in like 2003, I, you know, got voted on, I volunteered to be on the live board. And I was its chair for two or three years. I think three, four, two 2003, 2004, 2005, something like that. But the Chris Sarah and the records from live will help if you wanted to pinpoint mm-hmm. the years that I was the chair, but that was a fun experience, you know, collaborating on that and also, you know, working towards sustainable mm-hmm. viticulture and certification and, and those programs. So I was very supportive of that and, and, and felt like that was a fun thing to be a part of. As I got closer to 2006, when Rexa was selling and I was starting my own company, I realized I didn't have as much time to do some of the volunteer work that I was doing at that time. So that's when I kind of, got off the board at that time mm-hmm. to let other people go in and since then there's been you know that rotation of people that volunteer and help and, and do it and there's been a great transition all the way through. I think of some really good people getting better all the time. Chris Sarah is
1: fantastic. Mm-hmm. That was my live blurb. Do you remember so you were there for the beginning of live. Do you remember what the impetus was for getting live started?
0: Well, I think you know a lot of the inspiration was Ted Castile. And some more green-minded farmers and more sustainably minded people, and then Carmo, who was wonderful, I believe, although she didn't really fit with the Oregon industry very well, but she tried, and you know she was she moved on after five or six years or something like that, maybe a little longer um, Carmel had some international experience with other farming regions where some of these same philosophies and attitudes had permeated trying to be you know, the, be more sustainable at farming and you know, not use relying on chemicals and use natural controls and things like that. So just a combination of a number of people in the industry. Um, I know there's a few more, I'm just not thinking of. Al McDonald, of course, was... Um, Pivotal as well with Ted and helped a lot and get the program going. He was he was terrific. He kind of like got it off the ground personally mm-hmm. with support and 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 um, uh, collaboration from Ted Castile and a number of other people and Carmo. So, you know, they went and found some European sustainable farming standards through the I O B C, which is International Farming certifier and so they they've they found good information with that organization that helped them draft a framework for the protocols of how to be sustainable and then how can we certify it and they you know everybody tried to keep dues low so it'd be affordable and inspections minimal so it wouldn't be seen as invasive or um, you know threatening to farmers who didn't want to be told what to do so uh, I just had the same similar farming attitude. I was a little younger than some of that other, some of the, uh, you know, generation of people who were starting that and were, you know, kind of in the first wave. You know, I think starting in the 80s, I'm kind of part of the second wave, Mm -hmm. I think, Mm -hmm. somewhat, Mm -hmm. as far as timelines and generational timelines. And then I think, you know, we're kind of transitioning from the third To maybe the fourth wave now, on a generational standpoint of say every twenty years or something like that. So it's been fun to have that perspective. But um, I just was green-minded, kind of philosophically, person, sustainable attitude about the planet and wanting to you know do the right thing. It just goes back to my positive philosophy about you know doing things well or for a quality standpoint that was. the complement of the whole industry's image. And I think it's worked in Oregon because the the average standard and the image of quality and the average standard of quality is, is very high in general. But we sort of had to be, I felt, and I think that's a pivotal point to make, is that because the tonnages we farm here per acre, you know, the production we get per acre is so low mm-hmm. that we have to in order to justify the costs of that of farming such low tonnage that means that the cost of goods is higher so with with high cost of goods you have to have high quality so that the full circle perception is that well we we did the right thing here we made the right wine the wine was great it's sold at that price point which is higher than average for you know for this country whatever but it's not higher than average if you compared it to quality burgundy which are much higher in price so i mean i kind of knew that along from the beginning that you know we can we can compete with the best if we're focusing on quality that yields the outcome that, that will stand the test of time, sure. that, that people will pay attention, and they are, I mean, uh, there's, a, there's been a nice recognition about the Oregon wine quality in general, and of course, I'm mostly talking about my region, Mont Valley, Pinot Noir, and stuff like that, but but there will be more varieties and there are more varieties coming here now that are unique and interesting and less known that kind of create a spark of interest. and. Wineries need more than two or three wines. Tasting rooms need more than two or three wines to to generate interest by the public who are coming out, you know, to tour. So, I advocate for the new plantings of unique and different varieties like Gamay, Noir, and Trousseau, and heritage clones of things that were lesser known that create kind of spicy mix to a a um, to a blended wine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure there'll be a few more where, you know, as the planet grows and the climate gets a little warmer, we might be able to grow a few other things, but not necessarily everything, just some things in certain sites can sure. do
1: well here. Sure. You mentioned earlier the Premium Pacific and you had your, your oh, thoughts, yes. thoughts on that. So what's, what's your yes. thoughts on that? Are? Well,
0: I think that was an act of highway robbery. And I will say for sure that I, you know, I, I really watch my peers and I watch industry, I'm just an observant person and that's just my nature. So I kind of watch that whole thing unfold. Now m- my perspective is mine and it might not be entirely accurate in every single angle, but I think it's mostly accurate enough to get the gist of what happened from, from a higher elevation view. So here's what I see happened. <clears throat> As regulations increased in California and farmland became more valuable, and wine industry became very successful, especially in certain areas of Napa and sonoma and and some other areas, you know Santa Barbara and things like that. but of course, different climates have more limits you know with water and grape varieties and things like that so the the smart people in California who were involved in some of the wineries one of the the most pivotal and key people of all was a man named William Hill he has his own amazing unique history and it's slightly checkered I know he meant well in the beginning anyway he got together with a bunch of his MBA buddies and they swindled CalPERS which is the largest investment fund in the country maybe or one of the biggest investment funds on the planet right so much money they don't even know what to do with and so much money that the layers of oversight are buried among administrators who don't really know who who know but the people and the, the people who, participate, who <clears throat> the public employees who you know really own calpers right technically mm-hmm they could never see the layers of administration that would lead to certain investments being profitable or not.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And of course, CalPERS, as this huge fund, was investing in all sorts of things. But with all the layers of managers and administration, you know, if, if on your 401k or your, or your pension plan was going up, which of course, during many parts of the last 50 years, whatever, most things are going up. Stock market's been going up, the value of land's going up. I mean, crazily so, if that's a good word, crazily. Mm -hmm. In California, the property values are going up, right, and they're just looking at that. Seeing their own property values going up, seeing the reputation for wine, the interest in wine, growing wine sales, quality's getting better. They're just you know, riding this wave of momentum, and they go into the CalPERS brass with their MBA resumes, And William Hill behind the whole thing, kind of grand puppeteer, and they talked Calpers into giving them two hundred million dollars. I think just the first year. I'm not sure, but I know they got more money than that over time. I think it was like three to five hundred million is what they got out of Calpers, Mm which is a staggering amount of money. So they went around with their formulas that they had created. To tell everybody well we're gonna get this many tons and it's gonna cost this much to farm with this spacing and we're gonna and it's all on paper so and we're smart so it's gonna work and they bought a bunch of ranches in california and they bought a bunch of and they bought a handful of properties up here but a lot of their energy of course in california closer to home and no doubt about it, a bunch of very smart people and they went out and they hired the bet they got all that money and they sat on the, they're sitting on this huge nest of money and so then they got greedy and they started hiring all the best people in the industry from California at top dollar to to, to keep their image of what they were doing right and you know to and birds of a feather flock together a little bit so um, you know people got on board to this gravy train and then <clears throat> they came up here and they bought 5 or 10 properties but they would go out and they would just knock on doors and say we want your 500 acre ranch or whatever 200 acre ranch and then they would, they would get it and they would pay top dollar and they would they would then they started to brag we're spending 50,000 dollars an acre to put in these vineyards which is about double what we spend to you me know, to put it in vineyard roughly speaking but they were bragging because they were so th- thick in the money And so they would get like a 200-acre property, and they would plant 50 acres or something, or 30 or 100, whatever, you know, depending on the size of the property. And all those properties still exist,ence of course, but they. they had this formula where they they were a little bit arbitrary and they were a little a lot of them were kind of like we know better than you we're from California we're from the successful land of grape growing and you're just Oregon nobodies. so just move out of our way and let's do what we want that's how they contribute they hired one vineyard management company to help them made those guys millionaires they hired one excavation company to help them, made that guy a millionaire, right? Because, because they could, and that's fine. And those people, their timing was amazing. And they, they did great and they worked very hard. So those people deserved to have all that work, right? And that they made it happen. But I'm not talking about the, the workers along the way, right? I'm talking about the, the management, right? Mm-hmm. So to my knowledge of hearing it from people, they were basically taking 10 or 20 cents out of every dollar and lining their pockets with fees consulting fees at all these layers of administration, they created a company called Premier Pacific. They spent 50,000 an acre. They put in higher density vineyards, which cost more and have more need more intense farming. And then uh, a couple things happened. First of all, they had this funny formula where they're like, okay, we're gonna sell everything in 1.9 acre increments. And we're gonna put in such high density that that's gonna produce 10 tons per year, which is like 4.5 tons an acre or something like that, which which is conceivable, some years. But this is all on paper formula, right? And of course, that 1.9 acre increments with 9. Point something tons per nine, per 1.8 acre increment was all on paper in a formula that said at the end of the formula we're going to make money that's what the formula says and we've started now we're definitely going to finish because we're halfway in the middle of this thing all the while just lying in their pockets well after a couple years you know the the money got spent when I say a couple years I don't know you know three to five years and and the top brass started to thin out at all levels probably because when the money started to run out more because they were spending it so lavishly and lining their pockets all the top consultants stayed, but everybody in the middle and the bottom started, started to peel off, right? And then they had some aloof people from California managing those contracts, not necessarily friendly local types trying to you know, win get the win-win. Instead, they had these, these aloof know-it-all Californians coming up here, not returning phone calls, but trying to sell the fruit. And, and pretty soon, they were producing so much fruit, there was also a bit of a glut, partly by their making, but again, the industry was rolling, more people were planting. Wineries weren't being as built as fast as vineyards were being planted. So as they started to ramp up into like year five and six with some of these properties they'd been planting, you know, because they didn't buy everything at once, you know, this is probably like a 10-year arc, right? So around year six, as most of the vineyards had been planted and started to produce they sort of started to hide how much extra fruit they had that they couldn't sell. And so then they call bulk wineries, you know, on the spot market and say, we've got an extra 100 tons or 200 tons. You know, we've been selling it to everyone else for what was a f- essentially 2,500 to 3,000 a ton or something on that formula, right? For the nine tons on the two point, on the two acres kind of thing, right? So that all penciled out. They were able to produce fruit and sell it, you know, f- for. Um, 2,000, 2,500 a ton, something like that, and maybe more in some cases, right? The best considered blocks, whatever, right, in the best locations. Well, then they started to have this huge surplus of fruit. So they'd call the bulk wineries on the, in the, on the side, you know, on the, in the shadows, and say, you know, if you, if, if you just if it take 100 tons, we'll give you a special deal. So then the model started to fall apart. All the while, everybody's still taking their fees, right? everybody still gets that first 10 or 20 of every, percent of every dollar first and then every so so they started running out of money and then as the as calpers started to understand that that this was a never-ending scenario they just said we need to stop the bleeding this you guys have never made a penny in profit on any of this and of course a lot of the Value is in the equity of the property, but still at some point the annual operating expenses need to Be in line with the annual income from selling the fruit and so it turned out that the that the That they couldn't make that formula work so When they kept asking for money asking for money asking for money and things got more heated and more difficult and more Stressful premier pacific said Well, let's just declare bankruptcy (laughs) Bye. my pockets are really fat but see all the people downstream when I call about a crime I think that they just they just swindled CalPERS out of all this money lined their pockets and ran and then what happened they sold all the vineyards for 50 cents on the dollar of what they spent which was more in line with what we would spend for vineyards that we would put up here normally by people who are not taking advantage of the situation right and so all the big fish came up and gobbled all those vineyards up. And you know what? If, if, and one of them was Jackson Family. And I'll tell you, that was a huge savior. I mean, they're a big company, not everybody's gonna like big corporate attitudes and stuff, but they've been pretty cool mm-hmm. all along. And frankly, if we didn't have some big fish to come in here and buy those properties, the glut would have been worse, see? Mm-hmm. So they saw an opportunity to come in and get great vineyards at a, at a reduced price. Mm-hmm. On beautiful properties and strategic locations, because the calipers, I mean, because the Premier Pacific guys were really smart and they knew they knew what they were doing when they bought those properties. And so a bunch of Oregon wineries who were in the position to be able to purchase at that time, you know, were lucky and timing is everything. And then Jackson family bought, you know, a couple of those properties and has now owns like five. Brands and bought a couple other wineries, you know, and, and frankly, we still have a huge glut, we're way overplanted still, and that's not necessarily great for, like you said, who's, is the industry gonna grow, and how, and who, and where, well, I mean, there's gonna be some fits and starts and more challenging aspects to the growth of the industry because we have an overplanting scenario right now, we need to get caught up with wineries that can take up that surplus, but this whole Premier Pacific thing, you know, it's like a weird lucky curse of sorts, you know, I mean, they, they, <laughs> The cursed part is that they, you know, kind of failed at what they tried to do uh, from a profitable standpoint. But they did create a bunch of nice vineyards, which then made the industry even more attractive. With these larger-scale, high-quality, well-managed, you know, well-installed vineyards, all with irrigation reservoirs, roads, you know, no no expense spared. Sure. And so. Uh, the you know the outcome is that you know it, it kind of enhanced the vineyard. I mean the industry on certain levels by having professionals from California who were very experienced do a nice job. I just begrudge the managers who took all that fees and kind of swindled Calpers and could never make any money because they were always kind of in their own pockets first. So anyway, it has kind of this full circle ramification that now, you know they they brought more attention to the industry from California and so more California wineries have come up here and then that helped with the attention from europe and mm-hmm. other regions and other investors and you know and so it was just kind of a funny little s- scenario that kind of happened in the shadows a lot sure. because they didn't talk about what they were doing because sure. they didn't want anyone to know <laughs> it's super interesting <laughs> yeah that's my take on government that i'm pretty sure it's fairly tr- true to to that reality of
1: how that went down, I gave you a short version. but That's awesome. Pause for just a second. Yep. You, we talked about Mad Violets earlier mm-hmm. and it's kind of at start. Uh, what does the future of Mad Violets look like? Do you plan to expand or try new varietals or? You know, my day job is really vineyard management and my wife's day job is making
0: wine for some of, for her clients. So, Mad Violets is like our third child <laughs> and it's a boutique winery that is gonna stay small we might grow it a little bit over time. We're really only in four or five states, particularly Oregon and Florida. And that's another story about how you get sales started in one state or another, but that's has to do with connections and commitment to the market and, you know, time spent meeting people and stuff. So uh, we're also sold in Japan, but just a small amount. The point is that uh, we're just gonna give it small and boutique and have it kind of be a Illustration of what we like to do together. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, we have a little tasting room that's open by appointment at the property, and that's a fun aspect that we get to do and kind of share this experience without it being taking consuming too much of our lives. Since we're already growing grapes and making wine, we're doing a little bit for ourselves, but not trying to make it this big. self-sustaining brand although we want it to be sustainable it's just more about it's not going to be like our only income necessarily true you know time will tell if it became something a little bigger and a little more profitable than maybe it would be a retirement phase so to speak uh activity but you know retirement varies from person to person (laughs) so we're just going to keep Making the wine mostly from our own vineyards' fruit, and then we buy a few more acres of fruit, and uh, we um, <clears throat> we feel the wines are. Um, we've been told by people who try the wines, and by our own palates, that we think the wines are worthy of continuing to make and and, and pursuing as a as a course of um, showing what we like to do. You know, so if you can imagine that since since my wife and I collaborate with multiple clients where I grow the grape and she makes the wine, our project that we do together is like a calling card for people to see what we can do when we work together. Sure. And the wines that she's making I think are, are high quality
1: and the grapes have to be pretty good too. <laughs> sure. We've we'll talked a little bit today about the future of the Oregon wine industry, uh, and we talked about kind of the future vineyard management, future consolidation, and things like that. What do you see as you look into the future for Oregon wine? We talk, do, you, do you see more growth? Do you see certain obstacles in the way? What is it you're looking at as you look into, the say, the next 15, 20 years of Oregon wine?
0: We know some people say that Oregon is, you know, California 30 years ago. In some ways, there's some truisms to that, and so I see some of the similar growth patterns that are currently evident with more people moving here, because it's a very nice area, and lifestyle is very... um, desirable. So, uh, I, I just see continued urban growth in the cities and some rural, although, you know, they're not... Dividing property in the country here too much so you can't just make more wineries and homes and and so I feel like the That some areas like of in Dundee and Ribbon Ridge in particular Are have been sort of built up planted out Somewhat not not a hundred percent, but there's been there's more higher concentration of plantings Because of the perceived quality and the wines that you know are being made from some of these sites and areas and so I guess I see more of the same, so, some continued planting and growth. Again, we are kind of overplanted here, so I'm, I'm sure things will slow down somewhat. But you know, people can f- bring money from other places and still start their own brand and their own winery, vineyard operation without it having any relation really to the, what's going on in the rest of the industry. However, that's not easy. So you know, again, it kind of depends on the person's background and and, um, business plan. Mm -hmm. However, because this is really nice grape growing region and because there's less regulation here than say in California where there's a lot more people and there's more regulation about rural use, A quick example is in California, in Napa County, I know for sure, you can't even replant an existing vineyard without an environmental impact study. Now, I don't think that's all bad, but it's just an example of regulation that has slowed some things down there, but the the reason that they instilled that is because things were kind of going crazy fast. Mm -hmm. And some people were taking advantage of the circumstances, and so they had to place more control on people who would take advantage. There are people who go to Napa where it's ritzy and more um, more money-oriented and rather than um, go through the regulations to do something like cut down an old tree, they had enough money to just cut down the old tree and pay the fine and then the, it would be done, then they could continue and build their mansion or whatever. So those types of things happened enough where people were felt like maybe the industry was taking advantage of Them because of the high dollar participants in that industry that they had to sort of put the brakes on some people through that manner. And so this is an illustration of where of the trends that I'm sure we'll see here over time. For instance, there's only so much groundwater and as people put more wells in and take from those aquifers and those recharged areas, right, we're gonna not necessarily run out of water, but we're gonna, we are gonna affect our total water availability, and then there'll be, a, the, in the future, I expect there'll be a moratorium on wineries, and maybe wells, and, because wineries use a lot of water, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And so there's one I see would probably be something that, that is a hot button in the future, and people have seen what's happened in California, where there's, you know, maybe run out of water and have drought conditions more and more people, and so I think there'll be a little bit more um, to be a little bit better perspective on how to transition with the industry partly from people sort of watching neighboring states right Mm -hmm. so I think there'll be more reflection and more balanced uh, attitude about decision making as the industry grows and and puts pressure on on roads and services and people want to move out to wine country neighborhoods because of the lifestyle and the perceived, you know, um, image of, of living in the country where it's beautiful and so, you know, be- vineyards are beautiful um, and, and the forests and hills and valley, you know, that we it's such, a, it's such beautiful um, hills here in the Winant Valley that, you know, a lot of people think it's beautiful, which it is. And so I think we're gonna see you know how people move here. Wine industry is generating a lot of income for Oregon. Creating a good image, you know, having things in vineyard is not all houses and stuff. And you know, it turns out in some of the wildfires in California, the vineyards actually were a plus in some regions where they sort of slowed the fires down because there were these green spaces in between, and they were able to, you know, maybe mitigate some of the fires' damage. Um, that's a, a kind of a plug for, you know, horticulture, you know, in in and around homes and farms and stuff. But um, I see I, it continue to grow. I mean, it really appears to be a great growing region, especially for cool climate varietals, you know, which is what really it's all about. And the what's old is new again so often. And so the white varietals that were less popular in the second wave are becoming more popular again in this third and fourth wave of of investment and 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 um, and migration to the you know to the industry. You know. Riesling and Chardonnay used to be more planted than Pinot Noir, and then most of Chardonnay and Riesling got torn out. There are a few old vineyards left in those varieties, but now more people are planting Chardonnay in particular. Not a lot of Riesling being planted, but there's been some. And then, like I mentioned, some of the other varieties that are seen as as, um, ideally suited to this climate especially as the climate warms, we're gonna see more areas to be able to expand into the coast range foothills and slightly higher elevations in the mountains. Possibly the, the foothills of the Cascades, but that area is colder because cold air drains down off higher mountains. And so the the east side of the valley, which actually David Lett had a vineyard there early on um, at about 900 feet in the Abiqua area. It was one of his first vineyards. Hardly anybody even knows that, but it just ended up being too cold not too cold the grapes are still there but it ended up being a cold site but also a far away from the traffic patterns that were going from Portland to the coast right so Dundee's kind of a fun amazing place that just close enough to Portland beautiful soils make great wine grapes and you know not a lot of rock you know so uh wine is quite nice out of Dundee Hills and so I mean it was all this kind of perfect set of circumstances that allowed that area to get kind of built up because those same types of soils that are in Dundee Hills are in other areas of the valley but the proximity to Portland was kind of the ideal thing just past the urban growth boundary of like Beaverton Tigard you went through Sherwood and then boom you're in Newburgh, Yamhill County and then there's Dundee Hills, Shalem Mountain and so you know kind of a nice set of circumstances allowed the industry to proliferate in Yamhill County, but also that's one of the hillier areas that had, didn't have as many homes. And once it kind of got started, you know, and the ball was rolling, then it kind of built on itself. People started to, you know, go there for the same reason. And so I just think that trend will continue, yeah. And um, people are trying to make, you know, other unique types of wines like white Pinot Noir. You know what that is? You do. but. It's just Pinot Noir. We take the skins off and don't have any color and that's not a rose, it's not Pinot, it's white Pinot. So people are being creative and then when there's a lot of Pinot, you might notice there's a lot of Rosés out there. Well, that's a way to use Pinot to make a, a white wine or a refrigerator wine, right? And so that kind of gives people another product and a, and a fun type of wine that you know, is different, good with different foods and is you know, in the bottle quickly so the price points lower and kind of gets more people interested. You know, It's like how a lot of people started on white Zinfandel and then they graduated to other things after they realized they like wine, or that wine was, you know, a part of the meal. And so, um, <clears throat> there's still a lot of white zinfandel made, but it it opened up wine drinking to a lot of people who didn't know much about wine. And then their palates, you know, grow and become um, uh, developed. Um, what's the word I was looking for? an acquired taste or something, you know, once you start on something and you keep exploring it and then you realize that there's more to it and then you get more interested and then you tell your friends and on it goes. Yeah, I see continued expansion. There's a lot of great vineyard ground in this whole valley all the way down the coast range foothills from Forest Grove to Eugene. It's just these fantastic foothills at the right elevation. And, you know, we don't want to be at the valley floor because it's too cold and vigorous. And it can't be at the top of the ridges because it's too cold and rocky often but you know just too cold and so the sweet spot's right in the middle
1: not too high not too low we call it the goldilocks factor just right love it so that's all the questions that i have for you uh is there anything else you want to add at the end here anything i should have asked that i did not i can't think of anything offhand at the moment that i didn't already blab on about um covered a lot (laughs) yeah well i
0: think i have a, a somewhat unique perspective maybe um I feel very thankful to have gotten to work with a lot of people that I have in the industry and you know, so I got to work a little bit with Jim Marsh, a lot, actually I mean I still work with him and his family, but I mean he's getting older, so it's you know, that family's in third generation management. Got to work with Dick Erath a little bit, got to work around Dick Ponzi, Dave Adelsheim, some of these, you know, old guard guys, new Don Byard from Hidden Springs, the old Hills gang, the Huggins family, um, I worked briefly while in college at the Broadley winery for Craig and Claudia and they're now on second generation management with their son Morgan and he's still buying fruit from us or from some of my clients. I mean when I say still buying I worked used to work with him where I helped him in the vineyard a little bit but my attitude about quality farming has carried as I've had it all the way along and so even people I worked with 30 years ago will still come back to me to buy fruit when they want and that's kind of a fun you know full circle because they helped me get started by giving me some work when i when i in when i was in college and now 30 years later i'm growing great grapes that they're able to use at that winery that i was helping out with you know 30 years ago um of course the experience with barney watson was Mm -hmm. terrific Um, and all the people at osu that was a nice pivotal time you know pivotal in my life kind of honing in on what i wanted to do
1: I just like what I do, so it's fun, fun for me. (laughs) I'm a happy guy. Good. That's what we like to hear. So thank you so much for your time, for your answers. It's like time worked out. You have lots of time. Yes, exactly. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.